How many of you have ever been to an elementary school and possibly a junior high during lunchtime? Have you been there? It's crazy. It's chaos. I, I described it in the first service. It's a lot like Wall Street. Um, you know, kids file in, and when that bell rings, the chaos ensues, and the trades begin. Now, when I was a kid, um, I was a hot lunch kid. Um, there was no way that my mom was going to get up early and make me a sack lunch. And so I brought a dollar twenty-five to school every single day, and I had to stand in line, and I had to get the, the cardboard pizza and the corn that had no flavor, and pears. For some reason, they love to serve kids really disgusting flavorless pears. And that was my lunch every single day, it seemed like. Now, there was the good days. What's that? <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Now, the days, the good days were the chicken nugget days. Because you got chicken nuggets and mashed potatoes and gravy and a roll, and you'd make a little chicken nugget sandwich. It was good to go. Um, but I didn't have the sack lunch. Now, when the trades began, the kid who ruled the trade at the table was the sack lunch kid. Because the rest of us looked at that sack lunch like a treasure chest. And we had no idea what was going to come out of that sack lunch. Sometimes it was peanut butter and jelly. And when you're eating, you know, a cardboard pizza, that peanut butter and jelly looks really, really good. And then he would dig in and he would pull out, you know, a bag of Doritos. Are you kidding me? And when it got to dessert time and it was the ho-hos and the ding-dongs and near Christmas, it was the little miniature, you know, uh, uh, Snickers bars. That kid ruled the trade table. And no trade was going to be made until he decided what he was willing to trade for. There was power and potential in that sack lunch. He ruled the elementary table trades. Right? There's a lot of power. It's amazing what a person can do with a sack lunch. And that's the story that we're talking about today in John chapter 6. We're talking about a boy who has a sack lunch who God uses to do something Miraculous. We've been in the series of John called the Gospel of John, and it's going to take us through Easter. But if you want, you can uh, you can open up your Bibles or you can pull out your notes, and we're going to read John chapter six one through fifteen, and we're going to see a miracle that God did through just a simple sack lunch. And this is what the Scripture says: John chapter um, six verse one it says, "After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias." A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. So Jesus has his disciples, and he sees these people coming. He says, now I have an opportunity to reveal something about myself. So I'm going to test these guys who've been following me for a while, and I'm going to see what they're kind of learning about who I am and the potential of what God can do through me. So he asked Philip, he says, "Um, where can we buy bread for all these people? And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Now, this next sentence is really good. You might want to circle it. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Have you ever felt that way? 
Have you ever been going through a situation and you look and you're just like, God, this is so overwhelming. I have so little. I have nothing to offer. What in the world can you do through me? There's, th- this is a huge crowd and we have so little to offer. Sometimes we feel like this with our finances. You know, we lay out the bills and we see what we have to do and we want to turn our life around and start having our money honor God and take care of our family. And we look and we just say, man, there's so little. I mean, there's so much. And I, God, what am I going to do? How are we going to do this? Or God places a need on your heart to give something huge to the church or or to somebody. And you're just like, God, this doesn't make any sense. How in the world can I do this? It seems like... I, I can't figure it out. How are we going to work this? Sometimes it's, it's with our family or, or just the world we live in. I mean, how many have you felt a couple weeks ago when the tragedy, not the tragedy, but the murder took place in Florida and, and you looked at that problem and you were just like, God, what, what does this world come to? And how in the world can I myself make a difference? The problem is so huge because this isn't the first time it's happened this is the eighth time that there's been a shooting out of school this year in, in in the united states i mean that is that is more and more so so how god how i'm just one person how can i do something when this problem is so huge how that's what peter's asking he's saying god i mean jesus seriously um there's five thousand men here that's what we're about to read um, so, so tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sit down on the grassy slope. The men alone numbered 5,000. And so there were just 5,000 men. The scripture doesn't tell us how many women or how many children were there also. And so there's a lot of people sitting in this group, right? So the scripture says in verse 11, Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone is full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. See, what's amazing about this miracle is that not only does Jesus make enough for everybody to have a little, but the scripture says that Jesus made enough for everybody to feel satisfied. He says, I'm just not going to work a small miracle here. I'm going to go over and above and we're going to stuff these people to the gills. They're going to be full. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him doing this miraculous line, they exclaimed, surely he is a prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. I love that. The way that ends, Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, hey, I need you to go pick up what's left. And, uh, and they did. And the scripture says they had 12 baskets left over. How many disciples did Jesus have following him? Not a trick question. 12. So it's as like Jesus is saying, here's a basket for you. Here's a basket for you. Here's a basket for you. I have 12 baskets. I want to remind you that I'm the God that provides and I provide over abundantly. This is a teaching lesson for you disciples. And it's also a lesson for us about a miracle, about a little boy, and we don't know his age, but the scripture says he's a boy, so he could be TJ's age. TJ's age, walking up to Jesus with just a couple loaves and a couple fish, and God working a miracle through him, through the power of Jesus.
Isn't that what we all want? We want a miracle. We want God to work miracles in the people, in the lives of the people that we care about, right? Amen? Yes, we do. I hope we do. We want God to work miracles in our lives. Amen? Right? Yeah, I hope that's what we want. Many of us need a miracle. We need a miracle in our family. Maybe it's a relationship with our spouse or with our mother or or our father or with a brother or sister or somebody close to us and it's rocky and it's grinding and we're saying, God, I've tried to do something to make it right, but Father, you're going to have to work a miracle. Or maybe it's something going on at work and it's not going well and it's just been one of those weeks. Or maybe it's a strained relationship with a coworker, and we're just like, God, I need a miracle in this place. My, my place of business needs a miracle. Or maybe it's our finances. We, or it's just the world we live in. And we say, God, I'm looking at this world and I just have to tell you, it needs a miracle. Help us, Lord. But what if that miracle, now this is going to be a little corny, but just bear with me. What if that miracle was a miracle? What if that miracle began with you and it began with me? That is corny, isn't it? What if God wanted to use us to be a miracle in other people's lives? That is what I believe we can learn about this text and through this text. So how do we do that? How do we become a miracle or a miracle for other people? So glad you asked. Here's a few thoughts. The first one is this is that many miracles start out with the feeling, a simple divine nudge to help. Have you ever felt the nudge? Now, from your spouse? Have you ever had the elbow in the ribs, like, hey, you need to say something, and they get you in the elbow in the ribs, and they're like, hey, let's go. We've got to get a move on here. You say something. No, you say something. No, you say And it's just the nudging. That is, that's the nudge. Sometimes the nudge comes from our spouse, the little, hey, it's time to speak up. Sometimes the nudge comes from God. That feeling inside, that all of a sudden unsettled little nausea in our gut, the little flutter in our heart that says, I have to do something. It's in that place that miracles are born, that miracles start. They start with a nudge. I mean, think about the text. Think about the story. What moved that boy to say something? I mean, I don't think that Peter looked and said, oh, I see this boy, I'm going to steal his lunch and go take it to Jesus and then make Jesus do a miracle with this boy's lunch. I don't think it happened that way. I'm pretty sure the disciples weren't into stealing, right? And so more than likely, God prompted the heart of that little boy to say, "Um, Jesus, uh, Peter, I've got this to offer. Could you use my few loaves of bread and the couple fish? Maybe Jesus can do something with that. It all began with a nudge in a little boy's heart. An old high school friend, her name is Patrice. Haven't talked to her in 22 plus years. I just saw a post that she posted on Facebook. And I don't even know how we became Facebook friends, to be honest with you. We sat across from each other in accounting class. And um, she told a story this last Thursday about a nudge that she received. And, and I want to read it to you because I, I'll mess it up. But this is, um, she lives in, in Denver. And her son's name is Desert. She's a little bit of a cool hippie, right? She says, Desert, Desert's been struggling with another boy in class since the beginning of the school year. 
He sits near him at lunch and makes annoying noises until Dez gets frustrated and his goat gets got and he gets himself in trouble throwing a fit. So when I got to the class Christmas party this last December, um, the other kid had just pushed Dez to the ground and he was just completely distraught. Another mom told me that, it, that she saw it and it came out of nowhere and it was pretty brutal. And it's not hard to get angry when someone is hurting your child. Any parents been there before? Yeah, we all been there. And he said, and she said, and for two seconds, I wanted to kick this kid's rear. Now she used a different word there, but I'm choosing rear. He's been a bully after all. Then I started to think, I bet his home life isn't that great. Obviously, he doesn't know how to make friends. He's wanting Dez's attention. He doesn't know how to get it. So I asked Dez, does he play with anybody on the playground? And he said, no, he plays alone. She said, my heart just broke. He doesn't need his rear kicked. He needs a hug. So I started encouraging Dez to talk to him, telling him things he could say. And at the Valentine's party, I told him, happy Valentine's Day. And I put my arm around him for two seconds. And he looked at me like a deer caught in headlights. Fast forward to today, which was this last Thursday. She said, I'm in the classroom just for two minutes, and the kid comes out of nowhere and gives me a full embrace. He pulls back, and he looks at me all dreamy-like. And she said, I was kind of sideswiped. So I, I just said, hi, are you going to do any fun this, anything fun this weekend? You know, trying to strike up a conversation. And he asked if he could sit with me. So we sat on the rug together while the teacher finished talking to the rest of the class. And I just kept my arm around him, just pushing what she said, just good vibes and thoughts into him. She dismisses them, all the kids, and they run to go get their backpacks. And the teacher came up to me. She said she saw the whole exchange. I was a little bewildered. And she says, hey, he really likes women, you know. She says, no, I don't know. And, he, and, and because when he was two... Um, his mother died um, when he was two of cancer, no less. She said, a ton of bricks dropped on my heart. She said, no, I didn't know. And then the teacher says, you know, he goes to an after-school care until his dad can get him after work, and, and the kid is behind in all of his subjects. So she said, I, I think I'm going to be his tutor. And, his, and I'm going to give him as much as I can, um, as much unconditional motherly love as allowed at a school and making sure that my son is his friend. And my point's not to pat myself on the back, but to remind all of us how easy it is to be the change that you want to see in somebody else. We have a a societal problem that needs some love thrown at it. Get to know your neighbor. Embrace people, the neglected, the lonely, especially the haters. On Saturday, she updated. And she said, uh, my husband and I went on a play date with this man and this boy. Our sons are becoming best friends. It was just a nudge. It was just a moment in our heart that says, hey, this kid needs a hug. This kid needs an embrace. This kid needs a little bit of love. And maybe, just maybe, Patrice is going to be able to be God's love in somebody's life. Here's the rub, though. One of the things that has a tendency to hold us back is that we want to do something amazing. I want to do something amazing for God. But how about if we just started with doing something good? Because good turns into amazing. That's what Jesus did. Look at the scripture I put in your notes. 
Acts 10.38. It says, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Read this next part with me. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He just went around doing good. When I was on staff um, in 2005, or in 2006, at um, North Hills Church in North Phoenix, um, it said I-17, 19th Avenue and Greenway. And uh, on the north side of town, um, one of our associate pastors got a call from a city official um, saying, hey, we're having a, a, an emergency meeting leading into the summer. And uh, can can a representative from your church come and meet with us? And so the, the, the our associate pastor is just like, you know, I, I think I'm going to go. Um, I don't know what it's about. And, you know, we'll hear some more details, but it seems like the city needs our help. And it was at this meeting that the city began to describe the fact that in 2005 there was a record number of homeless people that died during that summer because of heat stroke. That there was such a bad heat wave that went through Phoenix in 2005 that people were losing their lives that were homeless because they were just out in the heat all day long and then they would couldn't get rest. And then at night when everybody else is sleeping in air conditioning, they're laying on concrete that's about 110 degrees and they can't get rest and they're eventually their hearts and their lives and their bodies give out. And she said, we need churches to help. And so our, our associate pastor or one of our associate pastors, Arlene, just felt a nudge in her heart saying we need to do something. So Arlene... Um, asked a few people to get together and we decided to open a heat relief shelter. And we would open it at about 10 in the morning when it was starting to get hot and we would close at about 6 or 7 p.m. And all we were going to do was just open the doors to our gym and to one of our, our big classrooms and let people come in, give them bottles of water, get out of the heat and take naps on some cots so that they can rest during the day because there's no resting at night when it's just that hot. And people started coming. I mean, it just got out into the community and homeless people started showing up and we decided to help them. And not only did it get out within the homeless community, but it also got out to a couple local hairstylists. And they said, hey, you know what? We're going to show up a couple days a week and we're going to cut hair for people um, because it just makes a person feel better And uh, when they get all that stuff, all that hair off their shoulders and just get a little bit of a breeze. And so they began to do that. A dentist found out and he said, hey, I'll come once a week and I'll, I'll offer some of my services to see if I can help some people. And then a doctor came and then some people said, hey, you know, people like showers, right? We want to get clean. We have some showers in our gym. So how about we let them take showers during the day and really get cleaned up? And so we posted someone at the door. One person would go in at a time and get cleaned up and, and just come out feeling refreshed. And then a person said, hey, I'll donate a couple washers and dryers so that we can wash their clothes. I mean, nobody likes walking around in dirty clothes, so let's give them something fresh and clean to wear. And so we began to do that. And then a couple ladies in the church said, hey, we really, really feel like God's telling us to fix them some lunch. And so they started coming up during the week and they started fixing people lunch. And it just went on and on and on. The Holy Spirit nudging people after person after person to do something good for someone in a tough situation in life. By the end of the summer, we had served over a thousand homeless people in that little corner of Phoenix. And it started with a simple nudge of a person's heart to do good. To do good. See, many miracles, they start out with the feeling, a simple nudge to help. Here's a second thought for you this morning, is never minimize who you are or what you have to offer. The boy was just a boy. With just a little, 
that could only help a few people. I mean, what if he thought that way? What if he said, you know what? I mean, I'm just a kid. I only have a couple loaves and a couple fish. That's only going to feed like one or two people, and I might not get any, and so I better hold on to it, right? It's not going to do very much good. This isn't going to make a difference. But it was exactly what Jesus needed to do a miracle that day. And you are, and you have, just what Jesus needs to do miracles all around your world. Period. Tristan gets this. In 2011, Tristan was nine years old. He was visiting his grandmother in Mesa, Arizona. It was an article in the, in the Phoenix um, newspaper and on ABC. He said he was visiting um, his, his grandmother in Mesa when his sister fell into the swimming pool. And, and he saved her by learning how to do CPR by watching TV. Tristan was visiting his grandmother in Mesa with his family when his two-year-old sister found, was found floating in the backyard pool. She said, my grandmother came in to look for some toothpaste. This is Tristan talking, nine-year-old boy. And she said, where's the baby? And so my mom went running outside, and there she was floating. And so, we, so while his mother and grandmother called for help, Tristan pulled her out of the water and began to do CPR on her, chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth. When she was pulled from the pool, she was totally unconscious and not breathing. And um, his mother, or Tristan said, I just went running outside again, and I did CPR on her. I knew what I was doing. That's a hilarious thing for a nine-year-old boy who learned how to do CPR by watching TV. He says, I knew what I was doing. A few minutes later, she'd been resuscitated, and she was breathing. And she's expected to be fine. Tristan This little boy, can you hear the confidence in his voice? I knew what I was doing. But we approach things differently, don't we? We say, what can God do through me? I'm a mess. Now this is me talking. Have you ever thought that way about you? I'm a mess. I can't get anything right. Have you ever said that? I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. How can I help somebody? That's Jared's job. Ever thought that? I'm going to mess it up. No. You have exactly what God needs to do something great. When Paul was in prison, he handpicked the leader for the Ephesus church to lead them as a church. Guess who he picked? A kid by the name of Timothy, who was just a young man. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.12. Actually, read the whole part with me. It says, Never let anyone think less of you because you are young. Now, why would Paul write that to Timothy? Do you think Timothy maybe thought that people would think less of him? That he didn't have what it takes to lead the church? That he wasn't a good example? That he didn't have the ability to be the leader? But Paul says, Hey, 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 buddy. TJ, never let anybody think less of you because you're young. Ever. Ever. And we can go around the room. Verity, Blake, never let anybody think less of you because you are young. Because you have exactly what it takes to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work through you to do miracles in this world. You do. 
And I could say the exact same thing about every single one of these adults who feels completely inadequate, ever felt that way, for God to do something great in your life and through your life. And I say, never let anyone look down on you. Because you're a woman. Because you're old. Because you're black. Because you're insecure about your voice. Because you're dot, dot, dot. Never let someone look down on you because you're young. Because. But, what Paul writes, set an example. Be an example to everyone by what you say in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. There are no excuses. God can use lots of different people with lots of different gifts to work miracles in this world. It's not about the size of your gift. It's about the size of your God. Amen? Here's a third thought. Sometimes to be a part of something miraculous, you have to risk looking ridiculous. Sometimes to be a part of something miraculous, you have to risk looking ridiculous. This may come as a surprise to you, but when I was in elementary, junior high, and high school, actually my whole life, I love acting. I love it. And I always have, all the way from second grade and second grade, I was Santa Claus in our school's, you know, Christmas performance. On Dasher, I still remember some of my lines. And I loved, I loved being Santa Claus. And I loved when I got to junior high, I went straight to the drama club. And I was like, I'm going to go to these weekend things and, and act and win some trophies. And I loved doing it. When I got to high school, I didn't do school plays, but I did church plays and musicals and skits. I love that stuff. And I always remember what my teacher taught me in junior high. She said, you have to get over the fear of looking ridiculous. She said, when you're up there on stage, it may look ridiculous because you have to act big and you have to talk loud and you have to enunciate over the top. It may look and sound ridiculous to you, but to us back here, it looks perfectly normal. It may feel ridiculous, but it's going to be just okay. And that's helped in a lot of different areas of my life. It's that fear that comes over us that gets in the way of us accomplishing what God wants to do through us. It's that fear. And you see this all throughout Scripture. Look at what I put in your notes, Hebrews 11. Listen, read this first part with me. And it is impossible to please God without faith. And then he goes on to describe it. He says, anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, listen, who warned him about things that had never happened before. I mean, if you know the story, when, Mo- when Noah was building the ark, God gave him the plans and said, I'm sending a flood. It's going to rain. Water's going to come from the sky. And Noah's like, whoa, 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 what? That's never happened before. There's going to be a flood. And all these people began to ridicule him and make fun of him and say, you're an idiot. Who are you talking to? You're, this doesn't make any sense. What do you mean, God, animals are going to come two by two? Are you? Well, that makes no sense whatsoever. And then it did. And they did. It says, by faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. The next story, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. Read the bold part with me. He went 
without knowing where he was going. So if you know the story, God approaches Abraham and he says, Abraham, I have this place that I want you to inherit and I want you to take your family and go. Well, God, where do you want me to go? I'll tell you when you get there. Now, how did that conversation go with Abraham and his wife? Hey, Sarah, um, the Lord's telling me um, that we're supposed to go to this place we got to pack up all the kids and all the brothers and sisters and all the cattle, and we got to head out. Well, where are we going, Abraham? I have no clue. But God has told us that when you get there, when we get there, He'll let us know. How did that conversation go? But if you know the story, Abraham went. And God showed him. And He used him to be the father of many nations. Have you ever thought that? I'm going to look so stupid. What in the world am I doing? God, you've got to be joking me. You want me to say what to who? Sometimes it's not just the risk. Sometimes it's the fear. It's the fear. I think I've told you the story of me sharing my faith with my grandpa, but just in case, it fits perfectly with this illustration. My grandfather had had a stroke and a heart attack and a few other things, and he was in the hospital, had a breather, a respirator. He, was, he wasn't he was doing well. But he was conscious and he was aware. And I was a kid in, in Bible college studying to be a youth pastor. And, and, and being a kid in a Bible college, I, I carried my Bible everywhere. I mean, it was like I felt like that was my duty. It never went anywhere without me. And so I kept it in my big coat and my jacket when it was, it was a couple days before Christmas. And uh, I was, we were visiting my, my, my grandparents in East Texas, and uh, my mom and my aunt and I decided to go spend the evening with my grandpa and, and just to see how he's doing. And so when I went, I felt this nudge inside that, Jared, it's time. It's time for you to tell your grandpa about me. Because my, my grandfather wasn't a believer. He was an alcoholic. He was a lot of things growing up, and none of them had anything to do with Christianity or being a follower of Jesus. He just lived a really rough life. And I started feeling this nudge. This is that moment. You need to share. You need to tell him about me. This, you need to do this. And so I went in with my mom and my aunt, and we spent all evening, and then I walked out, and I completely didn't do it. And I got into my car, or actually into my mom's car, sat in the back seat, and I said, Mom, I just felt this nudge. Jared, you got to go. This is it. This is the moment. So I got out of the car and I went back in and I sat down and said, Grandpa, I have something I need to share with you. And I laid the gospel out before him. And then I read to him the story that Jesus, the parable that Jesus tells of the workers that come and work different times during the day. But they all get paid the same rate. Some workers came and worked all day and they made a certain wage. And then some workers came and worked half a day and they got paid the same wage. And some workers came and worked a quarter of the day and they got paid the same wage. And some workers came and only worked an hour. And they got paid the same wage as those people who had worked all day long. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. That the reward of heaven is the same for everybody. Regardless, and I said, Grandpa, hopefully when I die, I would have been following Jesus for 70, 80, who knows how long. But you... We don't know how long you have to live. I said this, and I, you don't know how long I have to live. But if you make a decision for Christ today, you'll have the same reward that I get. Eternity in heaven with our Heavenly Father. And I laid the gospel out, and that night he accepted Christ as Savior. Two days later, Christmas morning, I got a telephone call that he had passed away. 
fear. The, the thought that I had, Papa's going to think I'm nuts. I mean, he was my best friend growing up. He's going to think I'm crazy. He doesn't want to hear this. He's not a believer. He's going to get mad at me and tell me to leave the room. Well, he couldn't really do that because he had a respirator in. But, but, but he's, he's not going to want to hear this. But he did. The fear was just my fear. This is what God wants. Are you ready? Are you ready? God just wants your obedience. That's it. The miracle, it's all up to him. We're just responsible for the obedience. Here's the last thought. Is that you have to stay humble. You may have given the gift, but it was God who made it multiply. You may have given the gift, but it was God who made it multiply. I hated working in school projects or in group projects when I was in, in junior high. Because it seemed like every time I got into a group and had to do a group project, that I got the, the other kids that didn't really want to do the work. And I had to do all the work. Anybody ever been there before? You remember those group projects? You do all the work. They may like answer one or two questions and they just ride your coattails to a C. Let's be honest, I might get a B, B plus. It was science. I hate science. I wasn't good at, at all the little molecules and multiplying them out and all that nonsense. And uh, I couldn't stand it. But every once in a while, I would get put up in a group with some of the other smart kids in class, much smarter than me. And I would do my, my part, and, and I would do some of it, but, but they would do the load, and, the, and then we'd get an A, right? I'd do my share, but let's be honest, they're the ones that got us the A, not, not me. Now, how ridiculous would it be if when we got that A, I took all the credit? If I said, oh man, you guys were lucky to have me in your group. Are you kidding me? What if that little boy would have looked at Jesus and said, man, Jesus, it's sure, it's, sure, it's sure good for you that I showed up today. I mean, I mean, he had a part to play, right? But let, let's be real. Who did the miracle? Jesus did. It was pretty small. Would he have been out of line if he would have hailed himself the hero of the day? Yeah, he would have. Because it was Jesus who made it multiply. I love this story that's in your notes. Um, Paul and Barnabas are, are speaking to a group of people in Acts chapter 14. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, Paul had began to work miracles. They shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And then it goes on to say that, that they said that this is Zeus. Zeus has taken the form of flesh. I mean, that would be pretty cool, right? To have somebody look at you and say, hey, you are a superhero. You have power, man. Look at Paul, how he responds. He says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothes in dismay. And they ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't get the credit for this miracle that's taken place. This was God. We're just normal folks just like you. God wants to use you to work a miracle in this world. And the world needs it. You feel the nudge? I can promise you, as a follower of Jesus, 
His Holy Spirit's going to nudge you this week. Will you listen? Will you say, okay, God. All right. You showed me. I'll do it. I'll speak up. Even though I may, I may look ridiculous, I'm going to risk it. Because maybe you want to do something miraculous through me. God, I know I don't have a whole lot to offer, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. I just got a few barley loaves and some fish. But you know what? You've worked miracles with that before. And so I know that you can work a miracle through me today. This week, His Spirit, He's going to speak. Will you listen?